Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello and welcome. My name's Neil Selwyn and in this episode we're talking about science denial and education. We're currently living through what many commentators have termed a post-truth era. These are times when some people continue to openly question the human causes of climate change, oppose vaccinations or deny the existence of the COVID pandemic altogether. So today I'm talking with educational psychologists Gail Sinatra and Barbara Hoffer about their new book, Science Denial, Why It Happens and What to Do About It. Gail and Barbara talk us through the psychology of science denial, from cognitive bias through to the influence of group identity. Crucially, we also discuss the role of schools and science education in fostering more nuanced understandings of the scientific process and basic information literacies. But first, I ask Gail, and then Barbara, to talk me through the different types of viewpoints that are at play here, and the distinction that the book makes between science doubt, science misunderstanding, and science denial. People who struggle to accept scientific consensus on climate change, you know, others that maybe resist vaccination, um, you know, people who are calling the pandemic a hoax, all the way to, you know, flat earthers. But um, we really feel like there's a range there. And um, we think we can speak to a lot of the different individuals along that range. Uh, you know, I think what was important to us when we first talked about writing this book is that we didn't want it to be just an us and them kind of thing. This idea that denial is something horrible that other people do and none of us are susceptible to that. So we're trying to create a sense of a continuum that there are an array of possibilities of, about why somebody might be um, doubtful or resistant or actually deny science. So is it a linear model? So you go from doubt to misunderstanding no, to denial? No, definitely not. No, no, no. <laughs> These are very distinct things. And I think the, the thing that characterizes deniers is a belief-based attitude rather than fact-based. So that's how we see deniers. We also realized as we researched this that there aren't a lot of people who actually deny science. You know, they don't think their gravity doesn't exist and their plane will fall out of the sky, but they might not vaccinate their kids. And so it's what some people have called cafeteria denial, that people sort of cherry pick what's convenient not to believe. Sure, sure. So, I mean, you're both psychologists and you're interested in the psychology of science denial, which is fascinating. And I'm really interested in kind of breaking in the book, you break it down to these three different factors. I mean, first of all, was this idea of social identity as a factor driving the psychology of science denial. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, so social identity is really, really powerful because it gives a lot of cues to people as to what to accept and what to reject, you know, regarding science. It also sort of keeps people in line. You know, you can even be ostracized from your group. Um, we always like to say that um, in Southern California, um, if you are uh, anti-GMO, that's one thing. But if you <laughs> if you are uh, anti-vaccination, it's another. It really depends on which group you're in, and those those group memberships will keep you in line. Um, and then if you tell a Southern California that kale is, you know, genetically modified, they're 
heads kind of explode and they get all sorts of upset. So it brings in this idea of as denial as a kind of collective thing rather than an individual thing. Well, I think it is in the sense of you want to stay in your group, right? So social groups are important for us as social beings. Boy, we found that out during this last year when we were all isolated, right? So you don't want to get kicked out of the group. Uh, So sometimes people may be hesitant to accept their group's perspective, but they kind of go along because they don't want to be kicked out. You know, on the other hand, we also know that social identity is multifaceted. People aren't just members of a single tribe. And so what we are advocating in terms of trying to help people move away from science denial or accept vaccinations or whatever it might be, is to think about what other aspect of their identity can you draw on? Think of them as a community member, someone who cares about their grandchildren, someone who's concerned about immunocompromised. You know, we have a number of examples of people who've changed their minds because they've been swayed by people who reflect another part of their identity. They're they're not monolithic. So, I mean, that's a, that's a kind of basis for hope. But, I mean, the second aspect of the psychology of science denial that you look at is this idea of reasoning biases and cognitive biases. And that sounds much more individualized. Yes, and in, in many ways it is. So when we, you know, if you think about uh, psychologist Daniel Kahneman's work where he talks about system one and system two. So you think about system one as being that rapid, intuitive way of responding. And that's what happens to people when they're on Facebook and they read that something about vaccinations and they click like and they move on. Um, And yet he talks about the importance of bringing out system two so that we can be rational, analytic and thoughtful. And I think what we're advocating is that people figure out when they need to slow down, when they need to pull on those critical thinking faculties. We can't do it all the time. I mean, psychologists know we're cognitive misers. You know, we're not able to be uh, critical thinkers all the time, nor do we need to be. But we need to help students. We need to, you know, we're educational psychologists. We need to think about how we train individuals to turn those faculties on. And then, of course, there are tons of other biases like confirmation bias. You know, you get online and you you stop searching as soon as you find the things that support what it is that you already believe and trying to get people, again, to slow down around that. So, I mean, that sounds very rational and, again, another kind of aspect of hope. But, I mean, the third aspect of the psychology of science denial that you've both picked up on is this idea of emotion and this idea of hot-button issues. And I guess there it's far less easy to slow down and kind of reflect on what you're doing. Well, yeah, the emotions are really tied to our attitudes about uh, science topics. They're linked. And so, you know, you have to wonder if when those emotions kick in as you're thinking about a topic, is it is your acceptance or rejection of a particular scientific topic based more in how you feel about it or how you think about it? And you know, you can't really compartmentalize your emotions apart from your thinking, nor would anyone suggest that uh, is the best way to go. But recognizing whether you want something to be true because you're feeling hopeful. Or if you want something not to be true, like climate change, because you're feeling threatened by that, maybe I have to change my lifestyle. And so those emotions are entering into how you think and reason about the science itself. And I'm really interested in this idea of collective emotions as well. People talk about the contagious nature of online misinformation. It's a mood, it's an affect that everybody catches. I mean, to what extent is is emotion a kind of collective thing? I think that that does happen. I mean, we see uh, climate anxiety taking off in youth. Uh, it can go positive to towards climate activism in a positive way. It can also actually create challenges for mental health. 
And so, yes, it is definitely collective in that if um, your peers are feeling a certain way about it, you might uh, feel that way as well. So the other thing that we write about is what psychologists call epistemic cognition, this idea that individuals have beliefs about knowledge and knowing, and that that affects the ways in which they reason, think, decide, et cetera. And we look at how those are both domain specific. We have beliefs about science, what we think science is, how it's conducted. And there are a lot of misconceptions about how science is constructed that get in the way of people really understanding science. So for example, people think that um, science, if the scientists aren't absolutely certain, then it must not be true. It must not be credible or believable. In fact, scientists argue for tentativeness. You know, they we use all this couching language in science to make it clear that we we don't prove something, we substantiate it, we have evidence for it, but that's confusing to the layperson who misunderstands that. So we've looked at those kind of beliefs and then also at what are thought of as more domain general beliefs about knowledge and knowing, you know, how it is that some people are absolutists. They think knowledge is right and wrong, black and white. They're just ripe for an authoritarian government that comes in and says, I have the truth. I am the leader. Here it is. Um, the, the next stage in that kind that theory, heuristically, is that people think multiplistically. They think, oh, one opinion is as good as another. And in the post-truth era, that has been a heyday for politicians. You know, anything that they don't like turns out to be fake, fake news. And the people who are thinking that way fall right into it. So this brings us to the question of education. You're both educational psychologists. And in some ways, what we understand about science and what we understand about truth comes in part from our school experiences. So, I mean, everybody, even the most rabid science denier, has been to school and studied science. I mean, where do schools fit in? Is school science and the way it's currently taught part of the problem? Well, we definitely always, as educators, um, want to see science education and all education improved. There's no question about that. Um, in the United States, our testing uh, regime has driven people to teach to those tests. And what they test most often is literacy and mathematics. So science in the United States has been pushed aside quite a bit in the curriculum. Uh, we do have new recommended standards. You're probably aware that the United States doesn't have federal education standards for what curriculum should be, but we have the next generation science standards recommended standards that emphasize that we shouldn't just teach about a concept in science, but we should teach about how scientists come to know and what are those practices that students can engage in thinking, reasoning, testing hypotheses, the kinds of epistemic cognition that Barbara was just talking about. And there is a movement to do much more of that in schools in the U.S. We found another misconception that students have is this idea of the scientific method as this very clear-cut, clean thing they learn, and they think all science is conducted that way. And that just eliminates any of the kinds of sciences that are more field-based or more inferential, that reason from evidence, and even the, the climate change kinds of issues. You know, How do we know when this is going to happen and how it's going to happen? That's just not part of the way they think science is done. So we don't do a very good job, at least in the U.S., and perhaps you do better there, of trying to make it clear 
what scientific methods are plural and how scientists go about it and what their assumptions are, why tentativeness is part of it, for example. And to what extent are issues of science denial and things like climate change and creation are being addressed in these new curricula that um, you were just describing? I mean, is this an issue that science educators are aware of? Yeah, I think it is an issue they're aware of. The next generation science standards do have climate science standards where they're supposed to teach about um, climate science, for example, but also they teach about those processes. So an example would be evaluating evidence, which is just what we need to do. Um, we need to look at evidence uh, critically, not just you know click, as uh, Barbara was saying, on some uh, clickbait story and share it, but rather evaluate evidence. And definitely these standards encourage that. They're not widely adopted yet across all the states Several states have adopted them and they are enacting them, but we have a long way to go to make this the standard practice of how science is taught in K-12 education in the United States. But, but this isn't really just the responsibility of science education. I mean, a lot of the things that Barbara was talking about, critical thinking, listening and debate, I mean, that sounds like civics. That sounds like it should be across the school curriculum. So to what extent is what you're talking about in terms of science now really a kind of whole school issue? I, I think it's very much a whole school issue. And particularly, and this is beyond science too, this is really about how to use the internet and how to make sense of the information that you get online. And the Pew Charitable Trust did a really nice study on algorithmic literacy, for example, and looked at how poorly equipped students are to even understand what a Google search returns to them and what it means. I mean, most students will think, well, if it's in the top 10 hits, that means it's, it's probably true which is utter nonsense. You know, they have no idea of how these algorithms are constructed and who's gamed the system to figure out how to get their things at the top. You know, I had students do a search pretending that they were a fourth grader trying to figure out if dinosaurs lived at the same time as humans. And at the time that they did this, four of the top 10 searches returned to say, yes, they did. And they looked totally credible. The students could not discern what was wrong with these sites on, on the limited ability that they had to look at that. Now, you talk a lot about science communicators as well, you know, public scientists, policymakers, media. I mean, given everything we've just talked about, what does the psychology of science denial have to say about what makes for good science communication? We do talk about science communication a lot in the book because uh, scientists obviously need to communicate about their work. But as we know, many of them may not be trained to do that, right? They're trained to publish their work and communicate with other scientists. So how they need to uh, change the way that they communicate in order to reach a broader audience is important. And also we're very concerned about science writers uh, and science communicators across the spectrum um, because we know that balanced reporting is not balanced if 97% of scientists uh, concur uh, presenting you know, two people with both sides when um, it's just misleading. Yeah, and there, there's there's so many rich examples of that, particularly in the climate change literature, of trying to present as though they're being unbiased. You know, let's show that you know we'll always go find some poor individual who who can deny it, and that's that's absurd. You know, the BBC, oh, probably five years back, issued a policy statement saying you cannot do that anymore. You know, when the, when it's settled science, we're going to treat it as settled science. Um, this would be like saying um, Manchester United. 
won the game, but maybe not, you know, like we're, <laughs> the, the referee has called it, it's over. But that's because it's such a politicised issue, though. We have to be balanced. We have to be objective. I mean, we, it, this isn't just a neutral thing, is it, Si? I mean, all, all, all these things we've just talked about. And yet the problem is, you know, the, uh, Boykoff has done research on balance as bias. What happens when people read those articles? They're more likely to become biased. They're more likely to see the science as not settled and uncertain. And that's really problematic that that science communicators can inadvertently trigger that. And science is different from political opinions, right? So we might have two different political philosophies about how much role government should take in meeting the climate challenge and how much should be on citizens and private industry. That's a political conversation. So maybe it does have two sides in that discussion. But, you know, the percent... Um, CO2 that is increasing, like that's that's really not an opinion-based issue with two sides. There's just the evidence and the consensus science, and that should be presented as such. You know, and I'll take us all the way back to the questions you started with of how do we distinguish denial from something like doubt? And we didn't quite get to that, but to talk about doubt for a minute, part of what's happened in the, in the U.S. in particular and worldwide really is big corporations have seeded doubt. They've manufactured it. It's very um, useful to them to get headline writers to treat it as though, well, there are two sides to this and it's not settled. And, you know, there's a long history of, of manufactured doubt in this country, as, as Oreskes and Conway talk about, you know, all the way back to uh, the tobacco causing cancer and how that got buried. And then the same public relations firms worked for Exxon recently to try to sow seeds of doubt around climate change and the human causes. Oh, well, that, that brings me on to my last question. Do you have hope for the future? Is this just a blip? Are we living in a moment or, or is it actually a downward spiral? Oh, I, I definitely have hope. I, I, I've seen so much interest in um, the issues that we're dealing with, I see so much um, youth activism and interest. Um, there's quite a environmental social justice movement that is, you know, taken off. And, um, you know, Barbara and I have been working together and doing this kind of research for a long time. And uh, just even 10 years ago, uh, these ideas weren't getting the traction they are now. So we definitely are are hopeful. Well, that's been, it's been wonderful hearing about the book, wonderful hearing about all the, I mean, these really important ideas. Thanks ever so much for taking the time to talk about it. And I hope the book does really well. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Neil.